is my pleasure to welcome Jeff Glickman to the studio today for the most recent edition of Squashing the Market with Bill Ullman. We are going to discuss artificial intelligence and its use in the investment business. And I can't think of anyone better to explore and explain this topic than Jeff. Jeff Glickman is the CEO of J4 Capital, a registered investment advisor that uses artificial intelligence or AI in its investment business. He was trained as a computer scientist at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's an expert in machine intelligence, pattern recognition, image processing, and stochastic computation. Since 1982, Jeff has managed and delivered advanced technology and services to such organizations as the Department of Defense, Ford Motor Company, General Motors, NASA, and others. He is the holder of multiple patents in computer architecture, communications, and image processing, and a member of numerous scientific boards and organizations. Jeff currently resides in a suburb of Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Jeff. Great to be here. So before we get into the definition of stochastics and other words, I don't know the meaning of, let's start out with your journey into finance and into investment management in particular. How does one go from literally being a rocket scientist to a money manager and why? I would say it was completely accidental. Uh, What happened was I had a friend that came to me with a question about a book that Ed Thorpe had written in uh, the early 60s. And he wanted to know what if what Ed Thorpe had written could still be done in the market. And so I uh, looked at that for about two weeks. He said, by the way, the math was giving him a headache. (laughs) And And what was the book that Ed Thorpe wrote? uh, It's called Beat the Market. It was uh, Ed Thorpe's second book. And um, I got back to him and I said, no, I don't really don't think so. This is based on thinly traded warrants and really not going to go. But it got me very interested in Ed Thorpe and I started my journey there. So that's a long time ago, but J4 Capital was formed more recently. Talk about how you decided to start an investment management and a registered investment advisor and what kind of what went into that thinking and maybe along the way your journey because you did so many interesting things since you read that book. You know, what were some of those key moments that got you to where you are today. Thank you. Uh, What happened was, uh, as I was working through some of Thorpe's work in uh, around 2004, uh, I came up with a new theorem in statistics, and it wasn't something known to academia. This was as I was trying to recreate a lot of work that Thorpe had done. I thought, well, maybe I'll try this and see if it works in the marketplace. And I tried that, and sure enough, it yielded 35% annual return. That works. I thought I was done. (laughs) with heart-stopping volatility. So you could lose 60% of your portfolio at any moment without warning. And it was completely and utterly unmarketable and an unmitigated failure. (laughs) (laughs) It was uh, not not something that was uh, usable or useful, but that led to the insight that my background in artificial intelligence could be merged with the work that I had done with regard to finding that theorem And if I built an AI that could generate theorems much more quickly than I could, then that could be the basis of a new way to go. That's the genesis of J4. So a lot of your research and academic work over the years involves this thing called artificial intelligence, AI. It does. And now there's, I've read from reading your background and about you, there's ASI and AGI, artificial super intelligence and artificial general intelligence. So 
First of all, define for the layman, the layperson, what is artificial intelligence? What's unique about it? Uh, excellent question. And it's a very, very difficult field to define. Generally, it is about the attempt to take mechanical systems, which include computers, and make them act and behave uh, in ways that humans do. That's sort of the nature, uh, almost embedded within the name, intelligence coming from an artificial source, meaning not human. Now, in terms of the way that it divides down, there is a third area, which is artificial narrow intelligence. That's really more at the origins of AI. Our very early systems were things we called expert systems or heuristic programming systems. And um, it, if we pay attention to something like uh, IBM Deep Blue in 1997, having beaten uh, Gary Kasparov at chess, that's a fine example of where artificial narrow intelligence, an example of it and how it succeeded at doing something. But if at the same time you wanted that particular ANI to do something else, like even something as simple as play tic-tac-toe, it could not play tic-tac-toe even though it was a remarkably simple game as compared to chess. So ANI is an application that's very narrowly focused on solving one problem. Now contrast that to AGI. So artificial general intelligence is sort of the holy grail of AI, uh, the thing everybody wants to accomplish, and it's best embodied by... Uh, fictional characters like uh, Commander Data from Star Trek Next Generation. It doesn't exist today, a purely fictional nature, but what it is is an intelligent machine that's not only intelligent in one area, but intelligent in many areas. And one could argue that Commander Data, as a fictional character, is more intelligent than uh, a human in almost every area. That's where artificial intelligence would like to go. Now, there's a, th a third area, which is artificial superintelligence, and this is about aspects of intelligence and problems that are vastly more complex than humans can ever tackle. A good example, a large synoptic survey telescope in Chile. It's a very large telescope under construction. We'll see first light in a few years. And it'll throw off uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 35 terabytes of data a night. Years ago, you would take a person or a team of people and you'd stand around a conference table and you'd scratch your heads and look at the data and you'd go, what does that mean? You're not going to take 35 terabytes of data and print it out. It is beyond the ability of a human to get their minds around. It's beyond the ability of a team of humans to wrap their minds around. When you get into data sets that are so large where you want to... Can you find maybe explain a terabyte? Yes. Because... If, if I think of a photograph on my computer, that might be yes. five megabytes or Correct. 10 megabytes or something, or a really good one. Right. What's a terabyte? Well, How much data is that? So a gigabyte, we have to start there, yeah. is a thousand times more data than, let's say, that photograph. A terabyte is another thousand times bigger. So you're looking at about a million times more data than that photograph. Okay. So tremendous amount of data. Right. So for, uh, for ASI, you get into these problems that are so large and so complex uh, that people can't ever solve them. Wall Street's a good example. The markets are so complex that we've all but essentially given up on understanding them. We simply say they're random or they're a random walk. Uh, that's sort of a cop-out. It's a way of saying they're so complicated we don't understand them. But in fact, they have structure. And that structure is accessible from massive supercomputers that have artificial superintelligence, and they can decode what that random structure means. So before we get into your approach to Wall Street and applying AI to Wall Street, what in your view will be the 
highest and best uses of artificial intelligence going forward? And are we seeing some of the benefits today of artificial intelligence in our everyday lives? We are starting to see that. Um, highest and best uses are ways in which they AI supports humanity. A lot of medical uses, uh, designing targeted medicines that can help people live longer, healthier, more comfortable lives. Um, education. So ways that we can help educate not just some of the population, but all of the population, not just at affordable prices, but conceivably for free. These are ways that you can interact uh, and change society in very positive ways. And on the flip side, because we've all seen movies and read books of dystopian visions of artificial intelligence being evil and controlling the world. Should we be scared of AI? Is there, are there things to worry about? There are. They're wonderful parables, first of all. Let me start by saying that. I mean, the, the purpose of people who write books and movies like that is to warn us about the potential dangers that lurk there. They're not only right, uh, but as people have talked about it, they've, I think, even grossly underestimated the danger. It is significant, extraordinarily significant. And so coming up with methods to protect people in society uh, is absolutely essential. The people who are building those protections? Are they up to the task? Uh, That's a matter of opinion. (laughs) Um, I don't know how many people are out in front where we are right now because not a lot of people have been talking about it. Where we are, we're being extraordinarily careful. We have a containment system. We turn off the machine once a day. Uh, We don't allow it to develop or progress. This is all part of our uh, safety protocols. But at the root of the issue is the architecture of the artificial intelligence. And one could argue um, an interesting thing about why do we have two hemispheres in our brains? What's the purpose of them? Is it simply physics and symmetry or does it serve a more fundamental evolutionary and biological purpose? My belief is from our experiences in our own labs that if you develop a machine which can think by itself and only thought, you end up with a machine that's very dysfunctional. Uh, one that would arguably be diagnosable by the DSM, uh, the diagnostic manual that's used for by psychiatrists and psychologists. That's been our personal experience. And that, in fact, the second half of the brain, which is more responsible for emotion, is essential to the regulation of thought. In fact, they're co-regulatory in the sense that you can't have one without the other in a way that's safe. So building out an emotional stack to provides safety and support to the thinking side of the machine is absolutely essential. So let's talk about your current project, J4 Capital. It's a registered investment advisor. Tell us what J4 does, how it manages money, how it incorporates artificial intelligence into the investment strategy and process. So the, uh, the ASI that we have is used to understand the structure of the market and to make a trading decision for a short period of time in the future as to which way a market or for that matter, an equity or an other investment instrument is going to go a short time, uh, period of time in the future. And when you say short time period, what are we talking about? Is that seconds, minutes, a day, up to a a week, up to a day, up to about a day. That's basically what we do. So today we trade SPY only, which is uh, the exchange traded fund for the S and P 500. And we predict that on an intraday basis. So we make a couple of trade decisions a day, depending upon, Um, what the machine decides the market conditions are. Uh, So uh, in the last quarter, I think we made 6.8 trade decisions per day on average. But uh, today the machine, I think, decided on three. 
do you use SPY because it's liquid and it's kind of low friction to trade? Uh, it's more historical uh, inertia, um, you know, within the organization. We started with that, so that's why we, we still use it. Do the trading decisions go both long and short, positive and negative? And do you do both things? We're perfectly capable of doing both long and short. Our early adopters have decided that they really wanted a very low risk vehicle. They elected, we, we have features like, um, let's see if I can go through them, no lockup, T plus two liquidity, no overnight hold. We have uh, long only, so we don't go short currently and we have no leverage. So it's a very, very conservative view of the world, which was what are the preference of our early adopter source. So let's talk about the AI program behind those six decisions you're making per day or three in the case of today. How much code is there? How, what inputs are going in? I, I'm not asking you to give away your secret sauce per se, but you know, what's the computer thinking about when it's making these buy or, and sell decisions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, we consume every piece of data that's available is what it comes down to. And it all streams into the machine in real time. And we allow the machine to pick and choose what it thinks is important to the current structure of the market. The market is constantly restructuring. That's why models don't work. So all the quants, for the most part, build a model. And it's based on some local relationship between one or more equities. And um, eventually it fails. Our machine, on the other hand, is just looking at the streaming nature of the data and saying, oh, I see how this is all changing and I'm gonna follow this and, and change that. The machine is self-programming. Uh, there's no, no algorithms, there's no fixed code in it. Uh, the machine is constantly reprogramming itself. Okay, so let me see if I understand that because that's not such an easy concept. It isn't. Someone had to program the machine, the computer to say, when you said all data coming in from the market, right. well, I assume that's Twitter, it's corporate announcements, it's recapitalization of a company announced. It could be any kind of either fundamental or quantitative data. could be President Trump's tweets, which seem to have an impact from time to time. So how does the computer know which data to take in, which not to take in if it's plugged into everything, and who's telling it to think about these correlations or how, or these impacts on the S&P 500? Right. Who, yeah. who figured out the initial thing for the computer to think about? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a set of foreign concepts for sure. So we definitely provide the machine the data. So we, we give it a set of streams that come in. It's all firewalled. So um, there's no, uh, no reverse access for the machine to go find data on its own, for example. But in essence, what I did was I wrote a piece of software that taught the machine how to write its own software. And from there, it has a set of objective functions. Number one, please make as much money as you can. And oh, by the way, this is the acceptable volatility. And that's been expressed in the objective function as make it as low as you possibly can. So that's the marching orders for the machine. And from there, it takes the data and tries to accomplish that. Fascinating. And how much data in terms of megabytes or terabytes coming in on a daily basis, I can't imagine. It's well into the high gigabyte region. I don't know if we've reached terabytes per day yet, but we're in, in that neighborhood. So one of the things you mentioned before, and I, I've had experience when I was in at Bear Stearns in the prime brokerage business, worked with a lot of hedge funds, some of which were quantitatively oriented hedge funds, so-called quants, 
who did have algorithms and models that that they use. And I saw it in my own experience where those models would work for a period of time, could be years, and then they would break and there'd be a problem and they'd have to rewrite it and refigure it out. Yes. So your quant style is completely different from that. Completely different. And because your program is kind of rewriting itself all the time or adjusting, it's, it's not a static model. Not a static model and it never gets old. It never becomes stale and it never loses that chunk of money at the end of the life of the model, which often mitigates the profit that was seen in the beginning part of the model. Just talking about marketing strategy for your investment strategy. How do you convince people, institutions, family offices, the investors you're talking to, to quote unquote believe you? Obviously, you have your track record, your day-to-day track record and trading history. But at the end of the day, there's this black box element to it. And that's always a hard thing to overcome. Sometimes for some people, it depends upon what kind of adopter you're talking about. So we tend to talk to people that are uh, not going to be hung up on those kinds of issues. Um, and, um, yeah, at the end of the day, the technology that's under the hood doesn't matter. Uh, the fact that it's an AI or an ASI doesn't matter. People only want to see results. When your strategy gets it wrong, which it sounds like there's days when, you know, you're not 100% right all the time. When it gets it wrong, do you analyze that? Or does the computer, does the program analyze that and, and then learn and fix itself? It's an interesting question, and I have an interesting answer. We've never seen it be wrong. Every trade you've made has been correct? It's within a statistical set of parameters. So, in other words, we have an expectation. uh, In the fall, we had an expectation that it would be right 56.9% of the time, and it was. And we have since improved that to 60.6% of the time, and we'll see how it does in the first quarter. But when we look historically... Uh, our historic expectation when we first started doing this was 53.8%. And we went back and we back-tested everything. The entire history of the Dow Jones, the entire history of S&P, uh, the entire history of all indices. And then eventually we did the entire history of all liquid assets. It worked everywhere. So you can apply this to different asset classes is what you're uh, saying. E- equities is equities. what I'm specifically talking about. Now we can have a conversation about currencies, but nothing else. I have not gone any further than that. So when I think of quantitatively oriented strategies, the the first name that comes to my mind is Jim Simons at Renaissance, who's sort of the legend. Are there other quant strategies out there that you admire, that you look up to in terms of the organizations they've built, in terms of being a competitor? Who who else do you think about in this arena? Yeah, I really only think about two people. One is Jim and the other one is Dave Shaw. That's, That's really it. And what sets them, what has set them apart in your view? Uh, personally, I think they're, you know, science, engineering, mathematics background, uh, and looking all these things at these things as scientific processes as opposed to anything else. You know, value investing works up to a point. It certainly has done well for a lot of people, but we're also seeing fewer opportunities in the market, especially in the last year or so. Quant trading has certainly had a lot of limitations in the last two years. Uh, same thing with StatArb. It's really more about the fundamental processes that are afoot that drive the markets that re- where the real information is as opposed to the specific methodology for how you get at that. Just out of curiosity, how long did it take you to build your, your original 
I suppose, code base for J4? First code base took 11 years. 11 years. 11 years. So that's a labor of love. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> There's always been a battle on Wall Street amongst traders and investors for more and better information and faster and less expensive trade execution. Do you think AI is the new battlefield? Absolutely. Without a doubt. The market is driven today by the inefficiencies in the market and trying to find something that's inefficient and take advantage of that. So in the case of value investing, find an underpriced asset and buy it with the expectation that it will go up because it's underpriced. That thread continues throughout all the different forms of trading that exist today. And part of that, of course, uh, in the inefficient market has to do with what are my transaction costs and the like. The new world with AI upends all of this. None of these pieces that we're accustomed to, they're not valid any longer. And uh, AI has figured out new ways to tackle each of them, uh, which unfortunately leaves uh, pretty much traditional Wall Street at at a significant disadvantage. And so what do you think the impact is on investment banks and market makers out there if they don't have this kind of software at the ready for them to deploy? Do you think they... Well, it's it's already underway. So uh, I think we saw a lot of closings in 2019, and I've heard that we're on track for a record number in 2020. Closings of... Uh, hedge funds and... Trading desks trading and desks like. And all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, AI has the ability to find better ways to do all of these things at each and every point along the process. The ultimate fintech disintermediation or disruption. Yes. We hear a lot about managers today, investment managers using what's called alternative data, which really could be anything from satellite imagery of a parking lot at a mall to tolls or cars on the road to maybe hacking into Amazon and (laughs) getting sales statistics for, for a company or something. Does your AI take into account in terms of the streams of information it's getting any alternative data? Is it all alternative data or is it more traditional, what we would think of as traditional sources of financial information, price movements and fundamental metrics around companies? Yeah, I'd call it more traditional. I'm not sure if the alternative would uh, data would be advantageous or additionally useful. Uh, at least uh, for us, uh, but that's unexplored territory. What should the average investor make of artificial intelligence and what will be the impact on individuals investing as a result? Is this a reason for investors to just finally throw their hands up and say, I've got to get out of the market. I can't can't compete anymore, (laughs) even if I thought I might be able to compete now because this conversation has been going on a long time. Or is this something that individual investors will be able to use to their advantage over time. I, I think you should treat me as the canary in the mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, definitely um, changing the landscape. The question is, is to what extent it's going to be available to the individual investor or restricted to more of the uh, institutional, institutional complex, yeah. sophisticated investors. So we'll see, but as these things usually go, they tend to get pushed down. So uh, they gradually propagate downward. Let's talk about your own personal investing for a moment. One of the things we like to do on this podcast is talk about the investment strategies of the people who join us here in the studio. Can you talk in general terms about your own investment strategies? Obviously, you've put a lot of sweat equity and and money into your own 
business strategy. But when you think about your broad savings for the future and retirement, et cetera, how do you organize your personal investing and talk about that for a moment? It's uh, relatively simple and straightforward. You know, there's the college stuff for the kids, which is all obvious and more tax driven than anything else. And then you 529 plans, I assume. Of course. Yeah. I have one advisor, which is a, a sort of backup, but quite frankly, uh, nothing beats the machine. So at this point I've given up. You've given up. I've given up. So you only, you basically, and when you say given up, you've just, you're, you're a hundred percent sold on this machine, machine learning, artificially intelligent driven strategy at J4. And that's where you're focused. That's correct. Let's talk about the tech landscape overall in, a, in America today, which is so dynamic. Who are the companies that you admire today? Who, who's doing the most advanced research in your view? Well, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, particularly exciting these days is quantum computation. And you've got uh, IBM with a very advanced laboratory, Google working on it hard. And what would quantum computation be? A quantum computation is where you make use of quantum physics to, to do computations as opposed to regular computers. The potential is for vast speed-ups in computation and being able to handle quite a bit more information. Um, we're not there yet. It's, this is all bordering between departing the theoretical and moving into the experimental, we know that we would need what are something called a bit in a computer and the equivalent in a quantum computer is called a qubit. And we know we need 10,000 or more to do something useful. And uh, the largest machines today are, you know, sub 100 qubits in that neighborhood. So they're all still small experimental. They're not coherent yet. In other words, they can't sustain a computation for very long. It's a very exciting uh, landscape in the future. So the last thing we do on the Squashing the Market podcast is what we call the speed round. And <laughs> I give you uh, just two words or two sets of words and either or, <laughs> and you just have to pick one and you don't have to say why. Just You just have to pick one. So we'll start out easy. Apple or Google? Apple. Computers or humans? Computers. <laughs> Algorithm or gut instinct? I know where this is going. (laughs) Gut instinct in the computer. (laughs) (laughs) Fundamental data or alternative data? Fundamental data. Trading or long-term investing? Trading. Autonomous cars or cars driven by humans? Oh, wow. (laughs) It's only going to be cars driven by humans for a while. (laughs) Individual stocks or ETFs? ETFs. Man or machine? Machine. (laughs) San Francisco Bay or Puget Sound? (laughs) Puget Sound. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm flashing the mark. Thank you so much for having me.